Well, hey, everybody, welcome. Let me just get your attention for a few minutes. Uh, great to have you all back tonight. Thank you for braving this thing. I heard it's called rain. Have you heard of it? Um, so uh, exciting to, uh, to have a little bit of that, but more exciting to have you back here. How many here for the first time? You were not here last week and you are here this week. Well, thank you for being here. I know we all got all you guys in the back. Thank you for joining us. So uh, it's great to have you here. Uh, just so, how many of you guys own a CD player? If you know what that is, a CD player. Okay. Um, so um, at the at the close of tonight's talk and the close of last week's talk, we have uh, CDs. If you'd like to take uh, a CD, please feel free to do that uh, for you to listen to, or maybe share with a friend that also has a CD player. And um, and but also uh, we're we're going live stream right now, I think. And so welcome to you guys watching live stream. Uh, and we also have videos at Lakeview, uh, Lakeview Christian Center's YouTube channel. So if you want to catch this or you want to share this with one of your friends, please, please do that. And want to encourage you too. Uh, I think I said, how many of you guys got the email I sent you? Okay, I'm not going to ask how many of you read the email I sent you. But, uh, but um, if you want to invite folks to come, it doesn't matter whether it's next week or week eight. We just love to have folks come. And it seems like every week... Uh, you can get something out of this. Well, I want to just do a kind of a, well, also a happy, uh, unhappy anniversary for all of us who went through Katrina and Gustav and Ida. And I understand Harvey and Isaac were on the same date as well. That's weird. So August 29th. And also the 15th birthday of Annette's and my third grandson, Jude. So Jude, happy, happy birthday to you. So quick review. Um, so last week, I think the major thing we talked about was faith, that we exercise faith all the time and that faith is not something that is, is religious necessarily. It is religious, but it's not, not only religious. And so I just want to kind of give you a quick update. If you weren't here, if you're watching live stream for the first time, just kind of jump on that real quickly. So I just want you to know everyone on the planet, whether you're the chief executive officer of Apple or you have a, a job uh, picking up garbage, it doesn't matter whether you, the world thinks you're great or not so great. Uh, as far as God's concerned, everybody, he sees everybody the same way if the God of the Bible is truly God. So everyone has a worldview or a philosophy by which you try to make sense out of life. Every one of us in this room has a worldview. And that worldview is based on certain presuppositions. You suppose certain things to be true, okay? Now, all of those are based on faith, okay? So tonight we talked about that, whether you, you came here tonight, you didn't meet the chef, but you ate his meal, okay? You drove here in the rain expecting to get here. We exercise faith all the time. Now, every faith is based upon an authority. Who says so? What's, 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 what's the, the person or the, uh, the position of certain numbers of people that make up an authority that says, I should believe this, which should then make the framework of my philosophy of life or my worldview. Now, every authority, for it to be a valid authority, is going to be based on evidence. Is there enough evidence to support the authority being a true authority whereby I can rest my faith in what 
he, she, they say so that I can have a philosophy of life or a worldview that to me makes sense. The question is, though, is there enough evidence to support that? And so as we grow up, our thoughts in life get more and more complex and we look for more and more evidence to support our position. Now, when we're kids, we pretty much don't think that. We just believe, you know, if we're real young, we believe what our parents tell us until we get to be about 13 and then, uh, or, what, or what anybody four years older than we, that just, we just believe what they say. We're not looking for evidence. And maybe these are some things you may have believed as a kid. If you swallow watermelon seeds, an entire watermelon will grow inside you. Did any of you believe that? So, so imagine, thank you, Eli, for, for your honesty. Okay, but, but can you imagine going to a grocery store and seeing this? Just evidence right there, corroborating evidence. Um, how about this? If you urinate in a pool, there's a special dye that turns it bright red so that everyone will know. Anybody, anybody believe that? Of course we didn't, because who never peed in a pool? I mean, come on. You're not an American if you didn't do that. Um, ah, remember when you believed? But then, I mean, what happened when you realized he's not real? God rest his soul. So anyway, we just have certain things that we believed as a kid. But as I said, as we get older, our our framework of thinking, what we believe, what we don't believe. Is there evidence to support that? And that's when we talk about tonight, who is Jesus? This is where we are. Now, if you weren't here the first time, I, want you, I just want to repeat what Alpha is not. Alpha is not a membership drive here at Lakeview Christian Center. Not, a, not a, an effort to get you to change your church, your, your denomination, get in your pocket. Okay, this is an opportunity for us to come in a very, and I hope you experienced this if you were here last week, a very non-threatening, fun setting, informative setting, to come and see what does the Bible have to say? Is it true? What do I believe? Why do I believe it? Why don't I believe that? And so that's what we'll do here for the next, well, this week and the next six weeks. And so we hope you are experienced that, and that you came back tonight because you realize, yeah, this, this was okay. This is all right. So tonight's topic, if true, if we find out that Jesus is who the Bible says he is, is probably the most important question we could ask, who is, who is Jesus? So I believed personally in a Jesus that did not exist. <laughs> I just, I never read a Bible, just grew up in America, went to a church, prayed some prayers. But in terms of who he was, I had really no idea. But I did pray, and I was aware of him, but I really did not know who he was. I basically made up a fictitious Jesus. Um, but when I was introduced to the, to the Jesus Christ of the Bible and history, not the Jesus I had created out of my sincere, but but incorrect beliefs, um, I became a follower of Jesus Christ. I didn't just believe about him. I actually began and became to believe in him. 
But it wasn't, it, but it was then, I should say, that I began to study and look for evidence, evidences to see, to see if there was, was it reasonable? Was it reasonable, reasonable to consider faith in the persons and claims of Jesus Christ and the Bible? So my question was, what's the evidence? So we already talked about this. Everybody's got a worldview that's based on faith, that looks to an authority, which is validated by evidence. So in terms of having a worldview that is based on the Bible and believing the Bible, well, if your worldview is that you're a follower of Jesus Christ, then your belief is that he is God. And that is based upon the Bible. And the question is, what is the evidence to support that? Right? Does that seem reasonable? I mean, it seems reasonable, I think. And so, so on page 12 of our, our manual, you can just turn open to there. We'll see here that he existed. Now look, no critically, no critical rational, thinking, unbiased historian believes that Jesus Christ or the Bible was a fable. Uh, if so, you basically have to do away with every other historic figure. You've got to deal away with Caesar and Plato, uh, Attila the Hun. You've got to deal away with all of them. Because we've never met Caesar or Plato or any of them, nor have we met Jesus physically. And so if we're going to throw out Jesus historically or the Bible historically, we're going to have to throw out everything else with it. If we're going to be fair, if we're going to be rational. So there are many accounts, many extra biblical accounts that Jesus, this Jesus of Nazareth was an actual historical figure. Uh, Cornelius Tacitus, now it, it, probably the greatest Italian um, Roman historian, you can see probably that we are uh, related here from my profile and his. Um, but he said, consequently, to get rid of the report that Nero had Rome burned, Nero fastened the guilt and inflicted the most exquisite tortures on a class hated for their abominations called Christians by the populace. Now, this guy wrote in about, um, you know, in the first century AD. So he's right around the time of Jesus. It says here, Christus, from whom the name had its origin, suffered the extreme penalty, meaning crucifixion, during the reign of Tiberius at the hands of one of our procurators, Pontius Pilate. Now, for the longest time, people thought Pontius Pilate was not actually a Roman, uh, a Roman figure or governing authority. And we see that here. We also see in, there's a, there's a, uh, a granite slab in uh, Caesarea Philippi, which has been excavated to show Pontius Pilate as a procurator in Rome at the time of Jesus. And so we have many like this, Josephus, Suetonius, Pliny the Younger, the disciples outside of the scripture. We have countless extra biblical evidences, historical manuscript evidences that there was this man, Jesus, who walked the earth. But what about the Bible? How do we know the New Testament hasn't been changed over the years. I mean, that's what we're looking for. Is the Bible reliable? Should we put a rational faith into that? How can we possibly know what the original documents 
said. Well, there is actually some pretty tremendous evidence. So I want you to take in your book. If you want, if, if you don't mind, you can do this just to have it. There's a, there's a literary science, a science of literature called textual criticism. Textual, T-E-X-T-U-A-L, if you want to write that down. Textual criticism. And within the science, this science of textual criticism is something called the bibliographical test. Okay, the bibliographical test. And let me just give you real quickly what the bibliographical test is. There's three tests in the bibliographical test. One, what are the quantity of manuscripts? Okay, now these are, these are manuscripts. This is well before the Gutenberg Press, manuscript meaning hand-copied, okay? So the quantity of manuscripts. How many of the manuscripts do we have? Now, we have none of the original autographs because they could not exist in weather, temperature, the dryness, of desert, all those things. And so uh, these are copies. So the first test of the bibliographical test is how many copies do we have? The second is the quality of manuscripts. Now, the quality is not how good they look. The, 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 the quality is, does, does Codex or copy one say the same thing as Codex two or three or four or 10 or 15 or 20? Is there consistency? What I read in Codex one and copy one, am I reading that almost exactly or total contradictions? Is there a consistency of what I'm reading? Or are they just saying totally different things? Okay, so quantity, how many do we have? How much do they agree with one another consistency? And then third, what's the time span? What is the time span between the original autograph, in other words, the author writing that originally, and the first copies of the manuscripts that we have? Do you see that? All right, so three tests, quantity, quality, and time span. So let's just look at a couple of these. I'm going to Maybe I'll just skip one, but you'll see in your manual, you can see in your manual, which I used to have right here, um, you can see in your manual that there's a bunch of historians listed in your manual, correct? What page is that? Is that 13 or 12? 13. All right. So you can see there. Well, let me just give you a few of those. Thank you, Ron. So kind of you. Um, let's just take a look at him. Here's Herodotus, okay? He was a Greek historian. He wrote the Greco-Persian Wars. He wrote from 488 to 428 B.C. This is B.C. before Christ. The earliest copy we have of his writings are A.D. 900. So you see here, this is, this is about 1,300 years from when Herodotus wrote to the first copy that we have. And we have 117 existing manuscripts. Right? We see this now. Here's um, Thucydides, another Greek historian. You can see he wrote the Peloponnesian Wars about the same time, and we have 104 copies. Here's Livy, Roman historian. He wrote from 59 BC to AD 17. Earliest copy we have is in the 400s. So there's about a 400-year time lapse between when he wrote and the copies that we have, and we have about 169 copies of those, right? Um, how about Homer? Okay, everybody read Homer. Everybody knows Homer. Uh, sorry, not, this Homer, not not that Homer. Um, probably we're more familiar with with this Homer than we are that Homer. It's American. Um, so Homer, you know, Iliad, Odyssey. But here's the Iliad. Iliad is writings on the Trojan War. Now this one you need to update in your in your manual because I, I did a little more homework on this, and that's been 
updated. So it was written about 800 B.C., that's the same time. Earliest copy now is 400 B.C., okay, about a time lapse of 400 years. But now they've located a bunch more manuscripts. We have about 1,757 manuscripts. I mean, that's, that's about 10 times, that's over 10 times more, almost 15, 16 times more than we have of Thucydides or Herodotus um, or Livy. Well, let's, and there's so many more, but just, again, this is just an introduction to the Christian faith, so I'm not going to be able to go into great, great detail. Well, let's just look at the New Testament. Okay, the New Testament, which is the testimony of Jesus Christ and the history of the church, okay, written between A.D. 40 and 100. Now, remember, Jesus was born, historians think that Jesus was probably born around 4 B.C., not exactly at the point that we go from B.C. to A.D., so, written about 40, Christ is crucified somewhere between 27 and 33 AD. So, we have copies written, written rather between 40 and 100. The earliest manuscripts, we have partial manuscripts, about 130 AD. We have full manuscripts showing around 350. Okay, we have a time lapse anywhere from 40 years to about 250 years. The number of copies that we have today, just under 24 thousand copies now here's the question because bibliographical test remember how many copies do we have then the consistency the time lapse remember we talked about the time lapse but what's the accuracy well let me just tell you this there are tens of thousands of discrepancies in the new testament tens of thousands if not more than that but here's the thing those discrepancies have nothing to do with the teachings of the New Testament. They could be different spellings of the name John or Mary or grammar, you know, grammatical marks in different places. But when it comes to the teachings of the New Testament, the consistency is profound. It is 99.5% accurate. So again, just on the basis of literary science, the New Testament, now the Old Testament's an, an, another thing altogether, and I don't have the time to go into that, but it's pretty fascinating as well, uh, the consistency of the Hebrew Scriptures. That we see what we have here, if you just are going to make a level playing field, there's no work of antiquity that even comes close to the numbers of copies that we have in the New Testament. And the consistency is phenomenal in terms of what Codex 1 says and Codex 365 says and copy your Codex 4322 says. There is immense consistency. Now, does this mean it's the Word of God? No, it doesn't mean it's the Word of God. But it does mean if we're going to use our brain, which we should do in all things, if we're going to do that, we can't just throw this away, or we need to throw away everything, if we're going to be fair about this. I'm not asking you to be religious here. I'm just asking for us to think about this. Um, if it was F.F. It was Bruce, who is a professor of New Testament criticism uh, at Manchester University in England, this is what he wrote. He says, concerning the New Testament documents, he says, it was not friendly witnesses that the early preachers had to reckon with. There were others, less well-disposed, who were also conversant with the facts of the ministry and the death of Jesus. Now, why can we say that? Because the copies are showing up at the same time 
as these people are still alive, there's the ability to say, ah, that didn't happen like that. So there is what we're talking about here and what FF Dr. Bruce is saying is they're eyewitness here. It was not friendly eyewitnesses that the early preachers had to reckon with. They, they weren't interested in being um, flambos for Nero. Okay? They weren't interested in that. So others less well disposed who were also conversant with the facts of the ministry and the death of Jesus. He says the disciples could not afford to risk inaccuracies, not to speak willful manipulation. In other words, just lying about the facts that wouldn't be facts at all which would at once be exposed by those who would be only too glad to do so. On the contrary, one of the strong points in the original apostolic preaching, which we're talking about the new, becoming the New Testament, is the confident appeal to the knowledge of the hearers. They not only said, we are witnesses of these things, but also as you yourselves know. Had the tendency been to depart from the facts in any material respect, the possible pressure of hostile witnesses in the audience would have served as a further corrective. Nobody's going to, I don't think this is true, nobody's going to die for a lie believing it's a lie. True, I would think. See, and so what these guys are, they're dying for what they believe is the truth. It's not like they just wrote a book and collected royalties, okay? They wrote a book and royalty would collect them and deal away with them. And so we see here with F.F. Bruce some pretty interesting, again, evidence of this New Testament, of these 27 books of the New Testament, which we'll talk about, by the way, a whole lot more, and the Hebrew Scriptures in week five, when we talk more uh, historically and in detail about the New Testament. So, so on page 14 of your manual, you'll see this, that, um, and I, I'm just going to run through this real quickly. Let me encourage you to, I mean, you've got an, what we call an Alpha Bible uh, we just call it an Alpha Bible because it's the Bible we use at Alpha, so everybody gets to be on the same page. Um, there's some things here. You'll, you'll see this, uh, that Jesus had a human body, the Bible says, that he got hungry and tired. Um, he had human emotions. He experienced anger, love. He experienced sadness. Um, he had human experiences. He was tempted. He learned. He worked. He obeyed. He, he, again, his, his emotions, he wept at the grave of a dear friend. But here's the real question. Was he more than just a man? More than just a great human? Or more than just a, a religious teacher? Was he more than that? Well, what did Jesus, what does the New Testament say that Jesus said about himself? So let's, let's just take a look at this. And we're going to uh, look at this. I think this is on... Page uh, 15, is that right? Page 15. Um, we're going to just look at a few of these here. And if you want to, you can look up on the screen, but it'd be nice for you to maybe write in your manual here. Jesus said this, and this is recorded by the Apostle John in the 6th chapter, the 35th verse. I think I told you guys last week the New Testament or the Bible originally did not have chapters and verses, but this helps us be able to locate sightings in the Scripture much 
more easily. Jesus said this. Now, now, and notice, I, these are my underlinings. These are not underlinings in the New Testament. He said, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me shall not hunger. And he who believes in me shall never thirst. Now, that's an interesting thing because today it's, it's not so much that Jesus is the bread of life. We, we, we've gotten, many of us have gotten to a place. This is where I was with God. I was just checking boxes with God. Because I wanted to make sure if I needed something, he was on my side, right? I mean, that's basically a smart thing to do. And so uh, I would go to church and I would say my prayers. But then I read the Bible and Jesus says, no, Frank, it's not about you going through the motions. This is about me, you and me. I am the bread of life. If you come to me, Frank, you're not going to hunger. Now, he's not telling us that we're going to have a bread supply every day. He's talking here about our soul. He's talking about a hungering that we talked about last week that each and every one of us has in our souls. Remember we talked about last week when we talked about Shia LaBeouf? There's a God-shaped hole in me. If I could just find it, I'd be on my way. And Blaise Pascal and every man, there's a God-shaped hole filled only by the person of Jesus Christ. So he who believes in me, we're going to talk much more next week about this word, believes. It's not just a, a mental assent kind of word. It's much more than that. Who believes in me shall never thirst. Interesting. So I'd like you to write here, if you want to, just to get a quick little pithy statement of what is he saying here? What he's saying here is this. He, he is claiming, okay, he's claiming to fill our emptiness, that hole on the inside of us. That's his claim. It may not be true, but that's what he's claiming. Let's look at another scripture. He said, I am, there it is again, I am the light of the world. This is John 8, 12. I am the light of the world. He who follows me, get this, I, me. You see how personal this is? This is not about um, organizations uh, or corporations or entities. He's talking about himself. I am the light of the world. This is, I'm going to make a big deal out of this until you get sick of hearing me say this probably. I am me. He's, he's talking about you and me. And he's talking about you and him. I'm the light of the world. He who follows me shall not walk in darkness, but shall have the light of life. Now, what is he saying here? He's talking about more than physical light. He's talking about this, that he gives direction and purpose. I'm the light of the world. If you follow me, you'll not walk in darkness. I will give you direction. I'll not lead you into darkness. I'll deliver you out of the darkness of your soul. But you'll have the light of life. He'll give us meaning. He said, I came. We talked about this last week, that you may have life and have it more abundantly. That's the claim. may not be true, but that's his claim. Right? Two more real quick. Jesus said, come to me. All you, you're getting the point here. All you who are weary and heavy burdened, I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you. He's talking here about an oxen yoke. Okay? And learn of me. For I am gentle and humble of heart and you will find rest. For your souls. He's saying, come to him. I'll give you rest if you're burdened and you realize it. And not all the money you have in the bank. Not all the great relationships you have around you. Nothing. Your businesses. 
the respect that you have in the community, nothing has relieved that burden. He says, I will give you rest. So what's he saying here? He's saying, I will give you a peace that you can't have from anything you have in the world. I'll give you a sense of, this is an interesting word, belonging. A connectedness like you never had before. And a sense and the truth that you will never be alone. That he is always with us. I think this is the last one. Oh, gosh, look at how this one starts. I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, I am, he who believes in me, shall live even if he dies. Huh. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Okay. What does that mean? So he's saying he's the resurrection and life. He who believes in me shall live even if he dies. Well, if we go back to these, he's not talking about our physical death. He's talking about a spiritual death that you will not die. You will not be spiritually separated from me on the other side of your last heartbeat. Remember last week we had the dash, physical life. If you were here, you can ask your table hosts if you don't know what I'm talking about right now. Physical life. And then the moment after our heart stops, that life that lasts forever, which almost everybody in this room that was here last week said, yes, I believe there's something on the other side of my last heartbeat that's going to last forever, and I think it's going to be good. I hope it's going to be good. Okay? So what he's saying here, if, and everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. He's talking here about spiritual life that we'll talk much more about next week and in, chapter, in, in week four. So if you die, you've only died physically. Real life. Unrestrained life. Unencumbered life. Pain-free life, heartache-free life, joy-filled life continues forever. I don't know if that's true or not, but that's what he says. He gives. He's making that claim. So what is he saying here? I will give you eternal security with my Father. You will not have to be concerned about dying on a bad day. Because your relationship with me is based on who I am, I'm going to get this next week a lot, but I'll just give this to you now. Your relationship with me, I want it to be based on who I am, not on who you are. And if we know ourselves, and we'll talk about this much more next week. Does it sound like I want you to come back next week? Um, It's based on who I am and what I have done, Jesus says. Not who you are and not what you have done. So those are some things that Jesus said here. So his teachings, interestingly enough, Jesus' teachings centered on himself. And I think you've gotten that just from these four verses that I've shared with you. But here's the interesting when, when it comes to other religious figures of the world, you can remove Confucius, Muhammad, Krishna, the Buddha. You can remove all of them from their teachings, and their teachings remain intact. They, they are not affected by them being removed. That is not true of Christianity. In Christianity, if you remove Jesus, Christianity crumbles. Now, I think you've just seen four verses that I've shown you that he is basing everything about what he's teaching on himself. 
not just some moral code, some rules or regulations or way you should live and way you shouldn't live. He says, everything I'm telling you is based on me being, my being, last week we talked about this, the way, the truth, the life, and that no one comes to truth, no one comes to God except through him. That's his claim. That is his claim. Is it true? So, interesting little thing about that. So, he, Jesus makes both indirect claims and direct claims to his being God. I'm going to skip the indirect claim. And maybe you guys can take that up at your tables tonight in Mark chapter 2. But he makes a direct claim in the Gospel of John in the 8th chapter. And I'm just going to just tell you the story and please check it out. I think... I'm trying to remember if I gave you a page number on that. I did not, but you you can get that. It's John chapter 8. Jesus is speaking to the religious leaders who are having a very difficult time with Jesus because he's kind of making them look bad in front of everybody else. He knows the scriptures. He's healing. Uh, He is teaching. He is gaining the respect of the people. And he tells tells the people the Pharisees, these again, the, who are Pharisees? Well, Pharisees are the, the religious and business leaders of the time. They were the respected men of the community. And Jesus, as I said, came in and began to create a stir among them because he is, he's pushing back against their religiosity. He's pushing back against their, their spiritual vanity and their desire to look better and be better than everybody else. And Jesus tells them um, that their father, Abraham, delighted to see his day. And that before Abraham was, Jesus said, I am. Well, when Jesus says before Abraham was, that's fine. When he says before Abraham was, I am. Every Jewish intellectual at that moment that's in the room, immediately their brain goes to Exodus chapter 3. And here is Moses. Now, if you've seen the Ten Commandments, you'll know this. Anybody old enough to see the Ten Commandments with Charlton Heston? Okay, a few of us in here. Um, Burning bush, not consumed. Moses gets close, God begins to speak through the bush. That's the way the story goes. Moses takes off his sandals because God says you're on holy ground. God says go to, you're going to go to Egypt because at this time, Israel has been in captivity to Egypt for hundreds of years. And Moses is like, uh, you want me to go to Egypt? Now, Moses has been on the backside of the desert for about, 40 years schlepping sheep. That's what he's been doing. Um, He lost his place in Egypt. I don't want to go back too far because you you don't care. But now he's been asked to go back to his people. Moses the Jew asked to go back to his people to declare to Pharaoh, let my people go. You've probably seen the cartoon version of this, right? What is it called? Uh, Prince of Egypt? Is that what it is? I got it right? Okay, good. All right, so, so Moses says, who do I say sent me? In other words, the name is an authoritative thing, much more than it is today. Who 
sent, who shall I say sent me? And Moses said, God said to Moses, I am, say to them, I am that I am. And so when Jesus says before Abraham was, and Abraham was before Moses, I am. They picked up stones to stone him. He made a direct claim that I am God come in the flesh. Now, he either was or he wasn't, but that's the claim. It's important for us to know as we're studying the Bible in the New Testament here, Jesus claims to be God in many places throughout the New Testament. Okay, Doesn't mean that he was. But it begs the question, was he or wasn't he? Um, we talked a little bit about uh, C.S. Lewis last week, the devout atheist, intellectual atheist, professor of ancient English literature at both Cambridge and Oxford universities, who became a devoted follower of Jesus Christ. Um, he put up this thing, which we can call like a decision tree analysis. You break things down into their smallest comp components, and from that you attempt to make a decision based on deductive reasoning. Jesus claimed to be God. Well, he either was or he wasn't. It's true or it's not true. Well, if it's false, he knew it wasn't false. I'm pardon me, he knew it was false, or he didn't know he was lying. Got that? He knew he was lying, or he didn't know he was lying. Well, let's say he knew he was lying. He was a liar. <laughs> Just lying through this whole thing. If he was a liar, he was a hypocrite. Because throughout his entire ministry, at least as we have it recorded in the New Testament, truly, truly, I tell you, I am the way, the truth. Everything he's saying about himself is true. I have come from the Father to tell you the truth, to give you my life, all this. He's a hypocrite because he's saying he's the truth, but he's really a liar. Now he's a demon. He's a demon because he's telling people, if you follow me, you will have life. I am the resurrection and the life. If you believe in me, you'll, you'll live even if you die. And he who believes in me will never die. He's a demon. He's telling people, I'm the way to the truth. But actually, I'm the way to hell. But I don't want you to know that. And then, he's a fool. He's a fool because full well knowing he was lying. He died teaching, proclaiming a lie. So was he a liar? He didn't know it. He was a lunatic. Just a lunatic. He thought he was, but he wasn't. See, he was sincerely deluded. Uh, let me read to you um, from... From Lewis's, uh, I think, mere Christianity. This is what Lewis says. He says, a man who was merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on a level with the man who says he is a poached egg or else he would be the devil of hell. I guess that would make him a deviled egg then if he was that. Um, he wrote that. I, just easy to fill in that blank. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God or else a madman or something worse. 
He says, you can shut him up for a fool. You can spit at him and kill him as a demon. Or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come up with any patronizing nonsense about, uh, nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. He did not intend to. Wow. Pretty interesting. Now, I don't know if you noticed this or not, but this kind of caught my attention about C.S. Lewis. He's smoking a freaking cigarette. <laughs> How could he be a Christian? And so, I, I just, I'm sorry. I just, I just couldn't, couldn't resist that. But this man could not, based on the evidence that was before him, deny that Jesus is the Christ. And just to show you guys, who cares? Really, who cares? Unless you're concerned about lung cancer. But in, when, when Lewis smoked, remember... It was healthy. These are healthy cigarettes. You're <laughs> yeah, of course, it's good for you. That smoke in your lungs. So, was it, was it false? He knew it. He didn't know. Was he a liar? Was he a lunatic? Or was he Lord? Now, if he is Lord, this falls right in your in my lap. Okay, now, again, don't. Don't just hear this now as just some class. Hear this is falling right in your and my lap tonight. With the decision that each of us have to make. We can reject if he is Lord. Or we can accept if he is Lord. So... These are the things that claim. Now, so, so we have many evidences. As I, we talked about, you know, worldview based on faith, based on authority, uh, validated by evidence or invalidated by evidence. So what do we have? What is the evidence, Frank, that would support that Jesus is who he says he is? Well, we could look at his teachings. We could look at miracles. We could look at his very character standing up against tremendous uh, tremendous uh, resistance to him and his teaching. But Christianity rises and falls based on one thing, one bit of evidence. Did he come out of the tomb alive on that first Easter morning? Because if he did not, Christianity is a farce. It is not to be believed. You need to turn this place into a restaurant or something. Because if he's just ash in that tomb, Christianity is not to be believed. Maybe some, I mean, Jesus said some cool stuff that maybe can make it a plaque to a plaque in your house. But he is not the way, the truth, the life, the resurrection, the life, the bread of life. He is not. Paul, Saul, maybe you've heard of Paul. We have many, about 13 books of the New Testament were written by the Apostle Paul. He was a persecutor of the church. He was doing his best to see followers of Christ extinguished, imprisoned. The 
faith in Christus totally crushed. And then he had a run-in with Jesus. Um, this is what we have. Paul writes to the church in Corinth. It's the 15th chapter. He writes this. He says, For I delivered to you that which is of first importance. I delivered to you as of first importance, excuse me, what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, and then appeared to Cephas. Cephas is also Peter, the apostle Peter. Then to the twelve. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive. Do you see that evidential thing that he's putting forth there? Though some have fallen asleep, meaning some have died. So for I delivered to you of first importance. Here's what Paul is saying is of first importance. Christ died according to the scriptures. That he must have been raised because he appeared afterwards to Cephas, the twelve, to over 500. And many were still alive. This is the message of Christianity. Paul goes on to write this as well. He says, and if Christ has not been raised, our preaching is useless and so is your faith. More than that, we are then found to be false witnesses about God for we testified about God that he raised Christ from the dead. Verse 17 says this, And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile. You are still in your sins. Now, you may not know what still in your sins means. I promise you if you come back next week, you'll know what that means. Uh, so, you're still in your sins. If only for this life, okay, if only for the dash, if only for the dash, we have hope in Christ. We are to be pitied more than all men. If there is no resurrection from the dead, then not even Christ is raised. Do you see what I'm saying? Christianity is based upon the life and death and, most importantly, resurrection of this man, Jesus of Nazareth. We know he lived. History tells us that. There's tons of evidence. We know he died. But did he rise on that third day? What would cause us to believe that? Well, there are many, many theories surrounding Jesus' resurrection. That he didn't actually rise from the dead. One is that the women went to the wrong tomb in the morning. It was dark. They went to the wrong tomb. Okay, well, if they went to the wrong tomb... They could then very quickly be brought to the right tomb so that when they go jumping up and down that he's raised from the dead, that would be equally, pardon me, clearly, quickly dispelled as a lie. Two, the disciples stole the body. Well, first off, the disciples who the scripture tells us ran, left Jesus, are now, with Jesus dead, going to overtake a troop of Roman guards, no less than 12 probably, overcome them, move this 2,000 pound stone out of the way, 
grab the dead body of Jesus and proclaim him alive and then die, every one of them except John that we know of. Believing, declaring something true that they know is a lie. I don't think so. The Jewish officials stole the body. They were concerned about Jesus, the disciples taking the body. So what they did is they took the body. And so when the disciples go that day, that morning, the women go to uh, anoint his body with perfumes. And they see the grave is empty. And they declare he must be alive. Well, what are the, what are the Jew, Jewish officials going to do at that moment? No, we knew you were going to try to pull this one. Maybe it was just a hallucination. Well, we talk, it's here, 500 people saw him at one time. 500 people don't have the same hallucination that don't want to have that hallucination, particularly. Or maybe he didn't just die. Maybe he just swooned. Okay? Maybe he just, you know, the blood loss, the dehydration, he just went unconscious. They thought he was dead. They didn't have stethoscopes in those days. Thought he was dead. They wrapped his body in the cool of the tomb. He was able to unwrap his body from the 100 pounds of spice that they put in there to preserve so that you don't have the, the smell of the decaying body. Then, he, then after he did that, he unwrapped himself from the tomb. He somehow, inside the tomb, pushed away the 2,000-pound rock and then beat up all the Roman guards. And then he appeared to his disciples with his pierced feet, pierced hands, completely bloodied body, scarred body, as the risen Christ. <laughs> I'm sorry, I don't, just don't have enough faith to believe that. It's, um, it's interesting, there's an um, article by the American Medical Association that we've got for you guys tonight if you want it. Um, uh, on the physical death of Jesus Christ, that he actually, uh, it, it tells about the actual uh, punishment of crucifixion. Um, I think I've got that here. Uh, yeah. So this is a fascinating article. If you'd like to have it, we have a copy of this for each of you. It tells what crucifixion was, when crucifixion was, the actual process of shaming, whipping, and hanging the victim from the cross. It was, you've never seen, I'm sure most of us have seen crucifixion depictions in movies about Jesus. They haven't come close to showing the horror of crucifixion. Um, before Christ was crucified, they flogged him and the, they, they would use whips and these whips were kind of short but they had bone and metal fragments in the whip itself. And they would just come down upon the back and rip it down. And that happened a lot of times, at least 39 times on his back. And so what did they do after that, after they whipped him? They, remember, they mocked him. They put a robe on his back. Can you imagine having a robe on your back after being, having your back just flayed open, beginning the coagulation process? his back to the robe. And then what did they do when they brought him to the cross? They ripped the robe off, creating the new, now the free flow of blood once again. Uh, when they 
when they crucify you, they don't go through the hand here. They'd go through the wrist where you have the ulna nerve. And when that, that nail about this big goes through the wrist, it goes through the ulna nerve and it just totally causes the spastic to create a spastic action in the hand there. And that happens in his hands and in his feet as well. And then it's declared that when they went to uh, make sure that the thieves were dead, they found that he was already dead. But to make sure that he was dead, they took uh, one of the Roman soldiers took an, an, a, a spear and pierced the side up through the heart, the pericardial sac, and outflowed water and blood because um, the water from the stress probably gathered around Christ's heart. And water and blood both came out at the same time. The chance of somebody surviving crucifixion was zero in a billion. So you may be interested in that article. But it's interesting. So many people have tried to explain away the crucifixion of Christ. Or rather, the resurrection of Christ. And I'm just going to show you just a couple of books. First off, Mere Christianity by C.S. Lewis. A great story. His autobiography of coming to faith in Christ. Uh, Lee Strobel was the chief legal editor of the Chicago Tribune, a, an atheist, gra graduated in legal studies from Yale University. His wife became a follower of Christ, and he wanted everything in his power to, t to make his wife realize she had believed a fraud. And so he literally, as an investigative reporter, went around the world researching the Bible, the resurrection, the person of Jesus. And uh, this is a book, we're going to give you this book next week. It's called The Case for Easter, really The Case for the Resurrection. So we'd like you to have a copy of that next week. Um, Josh McDowell, we have a copy of this for you tonight. If you like, call More Than a Carpenter. These are the cliff notes of, of Josh McDowell. If his books, if we had his books here, they'd be taller than I. He was challenged by Christians on his campus, I think at Indiana University. I could be wrong. Uh, to to uh, say, okay, you don't believe it? Prove it. And he became a follower of Christ and has spoken to countless millions of people all over the world. And then Frank Morrison, I love this one. Frank Morrison, he was a British journalist, wrote, Who Moved the Stone? Now this, I, this read this here, do you see this? It says, you can't, you can't see, um, the book that refused to be written. He was going to write a book to totally refute the resurrection of Christ. The first chapter in his book is the book that refused to be written. So many have wrestled with the question, who is Jesus Christ? And, and I want you to hear this just echoing through the canyons of time, right into this room tonight, right into your and my hearing. Um, who is he? Who do you say that I am. That question comes into this room tonight. Um, here's, as I close here tonight, this is, this is uh, from the Gospel of Matthew. It says, when Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? They replied, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still others, Jeremiah or one of the prophets. Jesus said this, but what about you? He asked, who do you say that I am? Now again, 
hear that question tonight coming from A.D. around 27 through the centuries, through the millennia, right into this room, right into your hearing. And would you just do this for a moment? Hear him ask you the question. Who do you say that I am? Who do you say that I am? Who do you say? Who do you believe that I am? Our lives are changed based on what we say and what we believe about the answer to that question. So, next week we're going to be talking about uh, why did Jesus die? I honestly had what I thought, I had no idea. I had no idea the depths of the truths and how relevant this was to me. What are the ramifications for you and me if Jesus did not stay in that tomb and was resurrected from the dead? What does the person of Jesus Christ really have to do with the way I live my day-to-day -day life? What does he have to do with the way I go to work? What does he have to do with the way I spend my money? What does he have to do with the way I treat my family? What does he have to do with me and in the dash? And what does he have to do with me and the line? So these are the things we're going to talk about next week. So I hope, if you just give me one more week, okay? I really would love for you to be here next week. We talk about why did Jesus die, okay? Thank you guys so much for being here. Let's take a quick break, and uh, we'll see you next week, I hope. Thanks for joining us.